Hello, and welcome to the Economist Intelligence Unit's Digital Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Swaby. This podcast is sponsored by DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation. We thank them for their support. As cloud computing, increasingly ubiquitous network connectivity and commodity hardware have reduced the technical barriers to the digital economy, talent and skills have emerged as the most sought-after fuel for innovation. If you're starting a digital business, your number one consideration is most likely access to skilled employees. Digital technology is transforming the way in which skills are formed and talent is distributed. Online learning materials, ranging from formal distance courses to how-to videos on YouTube, theoretically make it easier than ever to learn the necessary skills for digital work. Remote working, made possible by the internet, has extended the talent pool that companies could draw on, although as we'll hear, for some that has meant bringing work closer to home. At the same time, geography still seems to play a role in the market for digital skills. Hubs like Silicon Valley and its imitators serve as beacons for digital talent, and companies who seek to employ them must contend with eye-watering salaries and rents. On this month's episode, we discuss the dynamics of digital skills, exploring how digitization itself is shaping their supply and demand. My guests are Joycey John, Director of Education at UK Innovation Foundation Nesta, and Chris Johnson, CEO and co-founder of talent acquisition platform Uncubed. I started our conversation by asking Joycey what Nesta's research tells us about the digital skills that will be in high demand in future. So Nesta has done quite a lot of research into what are the skills that are going to be in high demand in the future. We've looked at 41 million job adverts and looked at what are the skills that will see an increase in demand and what are the skills that are going to see a decrease in demand. And we noticed that some of the skills that are the basic digital skills, those skills which are associated with tasks um, that or jobs that are going to see a decrease in demand are required uh, requiring a lot of digital skills but there are some jobs like teaching or chef which will require which will see an increase in demand are actually seeing um, a lower percentage of digital skills that are required so based on our analysis the top um, or the most promising digital skills are things like animation multimedia production uh, design and engineering uh, research and quantitative analysis, so some of the more advanced digital skills rather than the basic digital skills that can be automated away. The research shows that just having these technical skills or digital skills is not enough. You need um, creativity, collaborative problem solving, um, communication skills alongside the digital skills as well. Chris, does this match your experience at Uncubed? Uh, What do you find are the digital skills that are most in demand among US employers? Yes, it does. And we tend to focus in particular on some of the skill sets that Joycey mentioned, software development and software engineering and data science, and then the related sort of suite of skill sets required to build web-driven businesses. That's where most of our work is based. And two professions or skill sets, I think, are growing notably fast. One is, is of course, software developers, which gets a lot of press and attention and and even civic attention as cities try to figure out how to make more of these jobs uh, available and accessible. And and that is projected to grow 21% in the next 10 years. And these are U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. But the growth is pretty similar for data science. But on the data science side, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is 
projecting a 19% increase over the next 10 years. So pretty fascinating in that if you go back to the 90s when there was this massive sort of trend towards outsourcing, uh, and I think that the thinking was, at least in, in the U.S. economy and, and certainly elsewhere, that a lot of these jobs were not going to be available in the U.S. And, and now, 2019 going on 2020, you have the government itself projecting these really massive increases in the numbers of jobs available here in the U.S. So we can't discuss uh, skills without talking about education and training. And we've seen in the last decade uh, some innovations in in training. Uh, I'm thinking of online training resources, um, sort of massively online uh, courses, open courses, and uh, also skills boot camps, which often tend to be focused on uh, digital skills. Joycey, in your, your experience, what impact have these new methods have, which are the most effective, and not only on the availability for of skills for employers, but also about the accessibility of careers in digital technology. I think it's a really interesting space because there are lots of innovations happening in that space. So you have these MOOCs, the massive open online courses like Coursera, Udacity, edX, but there are also a whole range of other online courses, you know, LinkedIn Learning, um, and others. They have an interesting model. Some are like um, a university, which is online and people can access it anywhere. And then there are others that are much more like a trade school. But the biggest challenge with these online courses is the low retention rate. Uh, so hundreds, thousands of people sign up, but not many complete or not many go on to get the certification. So Nesta is doing some research to really looking at what motivates adults to learn and how can you give them the right information, advice, and guidance so they can continue on this lifelong learning journey. We're also launching a, a career tech challenge, which is specifically looking at addressing this issue of um, not enough people using the online tools to upskill and reskill. Is it fair to say that these things haven't had the, the impacts that we were expecting four or five years ago? I would say it has had an immense impact because a lot of people who couldn't have accessed high quality education can now access it. And without MOOCs, that wouldn't be possible. But in terms of really helping people transition into jobs, it still hasn't delivered on that promise. And there are some new models. You mentioned boot camps that have come up, which give three months of training, and but they cost $10,000. So it's super expensive. And there's a very small subset of society that can actually access these boot camps. There are some other innovations that are happening uh, which are absolutely free. And the only criteria for getting in is motivation and your potential to work hard. And one example of that is Ecole 42 based in France. And now they have um, opened in US and the model has been replicated in many other countries like Russia and um, many countries in Africa. Chris, so, so in your work, you connect uh, candidates with employers. Uh, have you seen these new approaches to skills development having an impact so far on, for example, the supply of skilled candidates on offer? I think all of these models have fallen way short versus the headline promise and certainly the the idea that a lot of investors dumped you know, hundreds of millions or, or really billions of dollars into. I think the numbers of people that have either found a new career or learned a new skill set outright through self-directed online training is actually quite small and there certainly are success stories but i think we as a as a people just might not be ready to learn that way i think on the other hand the boot camp model which joyzy just touched on and and it laid out some of the different 
models and structures that we're seeing in the market now, I think that has been effective. And to her point, the original the original model is quite expensive and therefore you know prohibitive for people if it's ten thousand ten thousand dollars or more per person. But the model itself has been quite effective. And I think what people are seeing out of it is a chance to, in a concentrated time, really learn a new skill set that, that can get a job. And it's it's not perfect, but we see plenty of boot camp grads end up with very successful careers, even at, at my company, Uncubed. Our lead software developer came from a boot camp. She was a, a teacher and worked in education before. Flipping now to the, the sort of recruitment side, what are... Uh, your company helps employers be more attractive to these kind of um, candidates, the, the candidates with the digital skills that they need. What are the best employers doing to attract that talent? And and what advice in particular do you give to, as you mentioned earlier, tr- more traditional established companies who feel they might be competing with startups and digital giants for the for the best candidates? Yeah, I guess overall the biggest trend that we've seen is that companies have started to treat the job search as an experience instead of a transaction. So, I mean, really going back to the dawn of newspapers, the thing that's been used to attract potential employees is a classified ad. And then, of course, when the Internet emerged... In the 80s and through the 90s, you had these these online versions of that same classified ad, a tiny square of text that was meant to tell you all you needed to know to create interest around a job opportunity. And now it's a very different world. And so much of what we do is visual and everything from Instagram, where people are looking at images all day, to even the way we communicate with images and, and emojis and, instead of, of text and so companies are embracing that and they're realizing that now it is an experience and, and they're really trying to uh, to customize each step of that candidate journey and that candidate experience so that it feels compelling and it creates interest in those roles. The second part of your question, what advice would I give to companies and especially traditional companies who want to compete for in-demand skills? And, and this is something we're seeing right now. I think what we saw the last several years was large companies trying to look like startups. And there had been this massive explosion of new companies and they were winning the, in the talent market mostly because they just seemed more exciting and, and candidates were more drawn to them. And of course, at the forefront, you have the the, the, the larger tech firms, the, the Googles and the Amazons, but then you have the countless startups behind that. And so large companies were trying to emulate that and they were trying to say, hey, look at us, we're a startup too. And they would try to create this image uh, of you know, people sitting on the floor on in bean bags and and uh, you know trying to you know, creatively come up with ideas, and I think that that worked. I think it it had its moment and and it allowed candidates to look at larger traditional companies differently. But I also think that's over. I think it's it's past. And the smartest traditional companies now are marketing the stuff that they're really good at, and this is certainly what we coach them to do. So, you know, we we always joke that. Very few people have ever left a company because they didn't spend enough, you know, refurbishing the conference room. It's usually other things like, is the management good? Does the person have a clear career path at hand in that company? And 
why have you been around 100 years or, or longer, 200 years? And it's probably because you've figured out a lot of things and probably been very innovative throughout that history. One of the, one of the most uh, complex and perhaps fraught topics related to um, recruitment in tech has been diversity. Um, Joycey, would you, would you argue that there is a, beyond the, the moral reasons for um, in, increasing the diversity of the employee base in technology, would you argue that it is a method for expanding your access to digital skills? Absolutely. If half the population is not even participating in creating technology solutions and algorithms, then of course you have a problem. There's a moral problem, but also an economic argument because there's quite a lot of research showing that when you have diverse people creating solutions, you're better able to meet the needs of a diverse population. And this problem in technology, the diversity problem in technology has been there for a long time. And with AI, it has um, sort of accelerated that program, uh, that problem. Um, why, do, why do you say that? Why, why AI in particular is accelerating it? Do you mean the visible effects of that lack of diversity are perpetuating or do you mean the input as well? I think both ends because um, there are lot of cases that have come to the forefront where the diversity issues have been reported in media because AI is just a way of looking at mass amounts of data and we know human beings are biased and if uh, the data that we are generating is biased and these machines are gen using that data to train algorithms then of course the output is going to be biased and until you have people coming from diverse backgrounds, not just the technologists, but also people from psychology and behavioral science and social studies, to really understand you know, what is the problem that they are trying to solve and how can these different people work together to come up with better solutions. So yes, there is a huge problem when it comes to diversity in tech. And, and what can employers do about that? What, what, if I'm, I'm head of a technology division within a large company and I'm concerned about this how do I go about addressing this I think employers need to change their recruitment um, development as well as retention practices and they need to get over the prejudices that they hold about um, certain gender or race or um, geographic background or even age you know there are a lot of issues when you see a particular CV especially when there are you know thousands of people applying for a role employers are looking for how to screen out and one of the things that they can do is using tools that help them address this bias. So Nest has invested in a tool called Be Applied, where it blanks out the job, uh, the person's name, as well as the location and their gender. There are other things that employers can do in terms of um, investing in upskilling and reskilling and recruiting from non-traditional pathways. Um, what I mean by that is uh, opportunities like digital skills apprenticeships, uh, opportunities where you have uh, return to work programs, uh, really investing in that talent development and pipeline, um, not just for people who are already within the workforce, but also how do you recruit, not just going to the top Ivy League universities, but how do you recruit from a broad set of uh, institutions? Chris, can I ask you, do you, do you see evidence among your clients as uh, for a desire to broaden the pool of digital talent that they're drawing from? We do, and specifically on the university point that, that you make, Joycey, there's we think there's two levels to it. So the first one is the fact that most large companies in the U.S. focus on, on a core group of schools, and almost uniformly that's 20 to 40 schools. But then structurally you have this 
this real blocker to having a diverse and inclusive workforce because those schools match up very poorly with a diverse you know, cross-section of, of students. And so just structurally, these companies are putting themselves at a huge disadvantage. So that's that's one level. And then the other one is more broadly, I mean, we we certainly coach our or, or challenge our clients to drop their university requirements. I think oftentimes new companies, and, and people think this is often like a traditional company problem, and it, it's really not. You get a startup most of the, most startups are are put together by pretty well educated folks and and when they open doors for the business they just draft some basic requirements to work there and i think a lot of them without thinking critically about it just put you know needs university degree and that carries on for years and years and years and then they find themselves in this issue where they're they're feeling like they're not that the workforce is not diverse and, and inclusive enough and we would argue that, that that's one of the core reasons and especially in this environment where the boot camps have grown and, and really proven to be a successful feeder as a, as a new in, into the, the labor market uh, for some of these in-demand digital skills. So if you lift the university requirement, it's going to give you lots of access to people who either couldn't uh, for, for financially or just didn't pursue a university degree. Joyce, yeah, another, another dimension of diversity is the, the geographic diversity of a company. And um, as Chris mentioned there, on the face of it, um, the, um, the, the ability of that digital technology offers for both skills training and work to be distributed around the world should mean that a company no longer needs to have a place and should be distributed all around the world. At the same time, we always hear about these, uh, these ecosystems, these hubs of digital talent and skills Silicon Valley obviously being the first one, but a, a series of would-be Silicon Valleys are emerging around the world, which would suggest that, in fact, no place is important. So what's going on? Why has uh, the potential of digital technology to remove the geographic boundaries to skills and jobs not happened as fast as we might have expected? That's a really interesting question, and that goes to show the importance of place and the role that it plays in creating social networks, uh, social capital, because urban areas where you have good infrastructure, good um, learning institutions, good training provision, and high density of employers who are looking for talent, you know, those sort of regions emerge as the points of innovation. And that's why places like Silicon Valley, London, Berlin, and others have really evolved as these hubs of innovation and where there are lots of opportunities or jobs. But I think with these global organizations, um, even if you're headquartered in one of these hubs of innovation, you can still have access to talent that's based anywhere and everywhere. Because I guess a few decades ago, everyone was um, talking about having access to skills and you had to be in a particular location. But now with internet access and with access to uh, opportunities you can be based anywhere and work for one of the biggest firms, tech firms. So I, I, I think it has leveled the playing field to a certain extent, but unless you're in an area, if you're in a rural area where there's not enough good broadband, then yes, you know, you, you're limited to access to those jobs. Chris, how have you seen uh, the ability for um, jobs, in a particular digital-related jobs, to be done remotely? How does that affect the jobs market? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. There, there's a 
There's some fascinating trends happening right now in the United States. One is that people are moving at the lowest pace in 70 years. This is new U.S. Census data that just came out. And so not since the 1940s has has the the population been so so stable and and immobile in terms of of location and and undoubtedly there's there's a ton of factors there but one of the upshots of that is that people are certainly moving around less for jobs and so it either implies that they're finding more locally or they are able to work remotely or they're just not you know taking those those opportunities so they're choosing to stay where they are rather than pursue something new even if it's you know maybe a a level up so that's that's one but the other thing that's been really fascinating and i don't think anybody would have predicted it in in the 90s is that rather than outsource jobs to other countries and of course india was was uh probably the 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 country where most of that happened at least with with american employers in the 90s now a lot of times what's happening is companies are looking into these not as populous parts of the United States, so say the, the Midwest, for talent for these skill sets. And so you know, they're, they're finding basically a cost arbitrage opportunity for one where they can pay someone less in, say, Iowa than they can in San Francisco. And then two, they're finding access, they're finding more supply. So it's less competitive to compete for that software developer who's living in Iowa than one who's in San Francisco and hearing from you know, dozens of large tech firms all the time with, with new offers. So it's, I, I would say that's an unexpected trend or it's an unexpected development in, in the labor markets, at least versus where we were at in the, in the 1990s. Great. Thank you. So uh, often we hear about the digital revolution being compared to the industrial revolution. And one, one of the, the, the impacts of the industrial revolution was the creation of uh, a, a large volume of sort of medium skilled jobs. Uh, whereas when when it comes to the digital skills we're talking about, programming and, and data science, these are still very high value uh, jobs in the sense that they command high salaries and uh, businesses are, are prepared to pay those. Uh, but also that they require a lot of, of training to, to enter. Do, do you think, uh, Chris, that's just the nature of the work, the complexity of development and data science means that it's always going to be a, a profession, you might say, or a middle-class job? Or could this provide a uh, large volume of jobs in future? I hope I hope it does. I, I would say I don't know. And <clears throat> the things that that I struggle to make sense of are, you know, and especially comparing with the Industrial Revolution, is that these are largely specialized skill sets. So if we oversimplify and say, industrial revolution or even post-World War II America, an an able-bodied person could find a career that would support a family and and allow them to, to do pretty well for themselves even without an education. And now we're looking at these very specialized skill sets. I also think it's early. And I think that we are seeing things that are being sort of democratized, I'd point to graphic design as one example. And not that long ago, you would have had to hire somebody who had a pretty sophisticated understanding of graphic design to make something that looked, you know, passably attractive for, for today's internet. And now you've got a platform, just to use an example, like Canva, 
where uh, someone like myself who has virtually no graphic design ability can go on that on that platform and in you know moments uh, make something that that looks pretty good. And so as you see some of these skill sets get uh, sort of, I guess, uh, uh, made available in, in a different format. I mean, it's quite possible that a number of, of professions and hopefully large volumes of sustainable jobs will, will come out of it. I guess on the flip side, I worry that one of the things the internet does is just quickly sort out a a a top and and a uh and, and a bottom and and including for labor labor markets and so you know it's created lots of these gig opportunities in the form of of delivery runs whether it's in, a, in an automobile or or around uh, on a bicycle or you know all of the gig economy work but are those and uh while those are very attractive and and fill a need for lots and lots of people in terms of the flexibility and their their ability to be anywhere, are those really the jobs that you know people are are wanting to create? And so that I think that's the thing that remains to be seen. I agree with you that some of these skills um, will become much more easier to develop as well as apply, and you know, not just in design but also in artificial intelligence. You don't need to be um, you know, an expert in statistics or, um, you know, an expert in coding to be able to apply some of these learning algorithms because technology has become so much easier than it used to be 20 years ago when I first learned programming because I think now anyone anywhere with access to internet can learn these skills and can easily apply it. But we need to remember that these specialized skills will be a small proportion of all the jobs that are out there and if we overly emphasize on technical skills and forget the human skills that will be increasingly needed in a world where people are based, um, are working in a much more distributed fashion, if we don't have the social and emotional skills, it'll be much more complex or difficult to do these jobs of the future. So I think it has to be a combination of both. Great. So to finish... I'd like to ask both of you, um, based on your research or your experience, uh, how do you think that the the supply and demand of digital skills and more broadly, the nature of work in digital technology is going to evolve in the next 10 years? And I'd like to start with you, Joyce. You know, Nesta's vision in, in this space is really using harnessing technology to reduce but not drive inequality. And the way we are heading the world is changing so fast, the jobs are evolving so fast, and people do not understand you know, what are the skills that they need to build. And even when they know that these are the skills that need, they need to build, they find it really hard to build those skills due to lack of time, resources, or access to these learning opportunities. So I really hope that we can build a world where employers, governments, civil society, and training institutions are working together to create a learning ecosystem and help people learn throughout their life and prepare them for a fast-changing world. You know, what people are learning in universities is not going to be relevant as they enter the workforce. And people who are in the workforce will need to constantly evolve and change um, and learn new skills. So I, I really believe that as a world, you know, there's quite a lot of fear about what's going to happen. You know, are robots going to take our jobs? 
But I do believe that if we can act collectively around harnessing human potential and focusing on the things that truly make us human um, and using technology to augment what we do and not replace uh, what humans can truly do, then we can create a better world and create a much better labor market. Same question for you, Chris. I would echo parts of that. And, and I do think that for all the gloom and doom stories that are out there, and you don't have to look very far to find as many of them as, as you'd like, but I think that the the labor markets are pretty good about sorting some of this stuff out. So if there are a, if there is a skill set that's really in demand and and pays quite a bit of money, then I think the the, the market will figure out how to create more of those jobs and or um, and create more of those uh, of and address the the supply shortage. Also, I also have a lot of confidence in in humanity. I guess in in finding creative ways to put ourselves to work. And I think if you look at history, all of the technological th- threats that were supposed to eh, put put us all out of business, I guess, in, in certain sectors or or so you have such a dramatic impact on work, I think some of that has played out and, and, and lots of it hasn't. And so I am actually fairly optimistic and I, I think that uh, it's still very early I think there's a there's a lot of imbalance now but I'm, I'm hopeful that as time passes and as Joyzy says as we get smarter about about uh, keeping that human element at hand and, and front and center that that hopefully it'll be a tool to, to create more and better opportunity rather than uh, less for a smaller number Chris Joyce thank you both for joining us thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. And thanks again to our sponsors, DXC, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe on your platform of choice. We'll be back in the new year.